Welcome back, Fungo Banter fans. Eric Sorensen here with another episode of Pacific Northwest Fungo Banter brought to you from Big Country Studios here in Ellensburg, Washington. So pumped about having another great episode for you guys to listen to today. We are welcomed by Billy Boyer, the infield base running coordinator for the Minnesota Twins. He's spent some time at Green River Community College, Pierce Community College, University of Washington, and Seattle U before he went to work with the in the big leagues. Uh, Coach Boyer is, guys, if you don't, you need to make sure that you have your headsets on. You're going to be in a room where you can give yourself full attention to this. Grab something to eat. Grab something to drink because a lot of great information thrown our way in this episode. Great, great insight on playing infield base running and just what it's about being a Pacific Northwest coach. And he also ends things talking about the coaches versus COVID uh, campaign, him and Tanner Swanson and, and a lot of coaches in the Pacific Northwest have going right now. So without further ado, let's bring on Kelly, bring on Jason and bring on uh, Coach Boyer from the Minnesota Twins. All right, Banter fans, we're back with our guest of the week. So excited to be joined by uh, Billy Boyer, who spent some time as assistant coach at Green River Community College, Pierce Community College, University of Washington, and Seattle U, where it led him to currently be in the infield and base running coordinator for the Minnesota Twins. Billy, thanks for joining us. No, no, thanks for having me on, guys. So quick, hard-hitting question, what's your favorite fungo or favorite machine? My favorite fungo or favorite machine. Well, I, the junior hack attack is by far my favorite machine by far. We, uh, we wear that thing out, uh, in spring training. We actually have about 15 of them, maybe even 20 of them. So we're, we're pretty blessed to have a bunch of machinery. So we, we go nuts with that thing, but favorite fungo, uh, Jordan DeVore sends me a couple fungos every year. Um, and, uh, the Devo bats, man, I, I swing the, I swing those quite a bit. Awesome. So having coached at every level, high school, pro college. Uh, what makes each unique and what do you do you miss about the high school and college game? I mean, I think what's unique about the pro side is just the the ability of the players, right? I mean, they're some of the best players in the world, um, incredibly talented, um, you know, so they're a lot of fun to work with. But they're also, you know, we don't we try not to treat them any different than we would, you know, uh, a 17 year old kid or 18 year old kid going into college. Um, I think it's really important to never assume that they know. Right. So it doesn't matter if I'm out there spending time with, uh, you know, a guy on the 40 man roster or in the big leagues or, or a rookie, you know, we're trying to teach them, uh, the same and, and spend time with them just like we would with a, a 16 or 17 year old kid. Um, I will say some of the things I miss about the, the younger levels, uh, or, you know, coaching at ATU baseball in the summer or, or in college, you know, like, uh, the players at those levels are pretty raw, you know, so I think you can have a a pretty big impact on those guys from the beginning um, where a lot of the pro guys have most of them for, um, you know, have gone through college or, or have had pretty extensive playing careers before they get it, uh, get a chance to touch them. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, we try to take a pretty simplistic approach with the twins and, and we're teaching guys um, what we would consider pretty basic fundamentals, but at the same time, you know, trying to find their deficiencies and, and find ways to help their needs. So, um, you know, I think, you know, it, we don't have to make this game harder than it already is. I think that's an important thing to remember. And that just because we're coaching at maybe a higher level doesn't mean that we're reinventing the wheel or trying to make it harder uh, or, or deeper than, than it needs to be. Kelly, you got a question for uh, Billy? I think you're next up on the uh, on the docket there. 
I am. We're we're first time for our listeners. We're on Zoom today and and uh, working through the mute and unmute button. But here we go. Uh, talk about that youth side of things a little bit more. Uh, I know it's somewhat of a memory. It's not a distant memory yet for you, but you know Rock Creek at 18 U level started a program kind of from the ground up. Um, what what made your team successful there? I think you took a team in the first couple of years and won a won a summer league title and, and did some really good things there. So so for coaches out there that are either in it or maybe starting a program, whether the summer or the high school level, um, what how can they make their programs most successful? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing that, you know, might have differentiated us from maybe some other programs in the state or in the area is like, and maybe this is not as unique as it was then at the time, but we, we really just tried to make it a family. You know, I tried to, we tried to spend as much time with those boys as we possibly could on and off the field. I um, mean, really make them feel like, uh, like we cared about them because we did. Um, and I think that was, uh, the biggest piece is, uh, we did, uh, we used to get pretty crazy, um, back in the day with the way that we got creative with the way that we tried to do team building and build a culture around our players. It wasn't always that we had, um, the best players. And I think those guys would would say that the guys that were on those teams um it's not that we always had the most talented teams or, or the best players in the area it's that we we were willing to fight for each other you know uh day in and day out and um we used to run a cool event that we called midnight madness um back in the day would we would bring in uh the whole team and we'd run a 24-hour practice and most of it was not baseball related um and, and was just a, good, a time for us to spend a lot of time together and get to know each other on a, on a deeper level um, and for them to see us, the coaching staff, that we weren't, you know, just coaches, that we were normal human beings too, and that we like to have fun and, and, uh, wanted to compete, you know, in the games that we were playing, uh, during that evening or, or were willing to be vulnerable to their questions and, and, and open to their ideas. And, um, I think that was what, one of the things that, you know, made us so successful is that we were able to build uh, really, really tight knit teams, um, kind of year in and year out. And, um, to the point now to where a lot of those guys that were on those clubs are now back coaching that club, which I think is, is a really, really cool. Um, and I think it speaks a lot to, um, how close we were and how much those guys really cared about our program. Um, and because of that, I think they just went out and, and, and played their butts off every night and, and, uh, and we were lucky enough to win a lot of ball games. You know, that's one Archer, Coach Archer from Sealy was on last week and talked to us about that similar thing that, you know, you might go out and face a team that's that's just full of studs, but if you're a team that's a, a you know combined unit and you do the little things correctly and awesome, you can beat some quality teams if you have the that kind of mentality. Yeah, and I think I think we knew who we were. I think we knew who we were better than anybody. Um, I think we knew our strengths. Um, we knew the way we wanted to play. Um, and, and we were able to, uh, really compete inside of that just because we, like I said, we just knew who we were and, and we had each other's backs kind of day in and day out. And we were, um, we were willing to fight and, 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 uh, that's a huge testament to, to the guys that we were able to, rec- uh, recruit to come play for us. And, and I, you know, I think I was pretty diligent about the way that I did that too. You know, we were looking for a certain kind of guy, you know, a guy that was, that was tough and, and. Um, a lot of times maybe overlooked by some other clubs and, and, um, sometimes that weren't overlooked by other clubs, but, uh, we just tried to, again, just try to build a culture, uh, around just playing as hard as we could and, and enjoying and, and, and loving the game. And I think that's, um, I think that was the thing that really took us to the next level is that we really tried to, 
to say, Hey, like we're all in this together, right? This is, this is what we're, we're here to do is to play our butts off and, and win every night. I think it's important to teach young players how to win too. Right. Like, um, I think, you know, that's a big part of, of being a good college player, right. Is knowing how to do things that's going to help your, your club win. And, and we try to create those types of identities for our players. Yeah, I think the levels of success too, there, uh, haven't been a part of it. You know, I think the one thing that gets kind of overlooked now is just that skill development side in the, in the summer ball realm. And, and I know people have different facilities and means to get better, but just practicing and teaching the game was, was some things that really impressed me within that program. And I continue that today, but, um, the attention to detail, the little things that really get overlooked and missed now where I know I, I occasionally see college guys that, that come and, and they don't know, you know, they're left from the right foot. Um, so learning some of those basic skills of, of how to round a bag and how to break down after a bag, I think those things get missed nowadays. And, and the people that can really teach the game at that level have so much success. Yeah, I think that's I think we took a lot of pride in that. That was uh, one of our goals every day when we practiced was to really, really give them really detailed insight of the specific skill that we were trying to dominate at that time. If it was base running or fielding or hitting or, or pitching or whatever it was. Um, again, we didn't try to overcomplicate it. We tried to keep it simple where they could understand it, but we were willing to, you know, take a two and a half hour practice and spend, you know, 15 or 20, maybe even 30 minutes on base running one day and, and how we were going to try to really dominate that realm. Uh, or some days it was, you know, on the pitching front or the hitting front or whatever it was. Um, we try to stay really detailed with them. And, and again, trying to take, and again, I think a lot of these players would attest to this, but pretty, pretty, you know, average, um, high school players or slightly above high school players, um, and, and really try to, uh, broaden their tool belts with just, with just skill and understanding techniques and how to, and how to take advantage of, um, those techniques and, and apply them to their game to make them well above average players. It's not that we were, you know, producing any Bryce Harper's out there or anything like that. We were just trying to put guys in a position to, to know as much about the game as possible. So they, when their opportunity came that they could use those, those weapons, um, as much as possible. Billy, what could you tell a high school player who's wanting to play in the pros one day? And what are the important tools for them to continue to work hard? on every day that they improve their stat lines move them towards the goal? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think think what you see in professional baseball, particularly, especially the guys that are playing on TV every night, is is their ability, their bat-to-ball skills are just off the roof, right? I mean, they're they're really, really good at making contact. Mm -hmm. Um, And the guys that aren't typically have a a power-type tool. Um, But I think the biggest thing for me is, is bat to ball skills and pitch selection. So I think, you know, it, there's not many, many, very many guys that make their way to the big league as defenders. Um, most of them are, are bats, right. And they defend second. Um, obviously the guys that are the best in the world, the Mike Trouts of the world, those types of guys, um, are, are just dual threats. They're incredible defenders, but uh, incredibly offensive. But I think the biggest thing that, that if I were to go back, um, and, and spend time with young hitters, it would be pitch selection, um, figuring out what they hit well, um, and, and, and what to lay off and, and kind of, and really dive into that. Um, and then just really, really try to focus on bat to ball skills. I think that's a, that's a, an area that you see professional players in general really excel at. Um, I mean, there's still strikeouts are at the you know highest rates they've ever been, but 
pitching is the best it's ever been in, in our game too. Right. So, um, but, uh, you know, power obviously is a tool, but not everybody has it. And if you don't, then you got to have incredible bats ball skills. You got to find a way to put the barrel on the ball and, and put it in play and put it in play hard. So the next part is our banter topic of the week and where we want a way better name in this. So if you have one, let us know. You know, we'll, okay. we'll listen. Uh, we probably need to have a meeting about that, fellas. But, you know, the first thing I want to talk about, and, and you know, I talked to Kelly quite a bit about things, and he's always talking about, you know, not having such a robotic approach to how to do things, but the job as a coach to give some your players as many tools to fit in their tool belt so they can go build yeah. that the, their baseball skills and become a better baseball player. And it, and it kind of comes down to, you know, we're going to give them skills, but what it comes down to is getting the play or making the play. So kind of elaborate on that. Uh, yeah. Guess, so we, we, we actually talk about this a lot with the twins. This is one of the things that's uh, one of our primary focuses um, from a defensive standpoint. So, I mean, number one priority for us is, is, is range advancement, but the number two priority is, is what we call um, creative problem solvers, right? When we're trying to give our guys um, the options to make a bunch of different styles of plays. And, and um, so we, every morning we uh, have a, a, a portion of our day that we it's our early work portion of the day and we pull out you know probably um, 12 15 guys at a time um and they our players would do this every other day but we call it our movement uh, solution portion of the day and what we're trying to do, to do is provide them with a lot of different movement skill sets and what i mean by that is is i think it's really common from the infield standpoint to uh backhands i think it's the easiest way to kind of describe this but you know, most infield coaches, at least when I was growing up, there was two styles of backhand, right? There was a backhand and there was an extended backhand. Um, and to us, it's, it's much more broad than that, right? There's, there's more ways to skin a cat, so to speak. Um, and what we're trying to do is provide our guys with six, seven, eight, 10, 12 different styles of backhands, right? And different variations of certain styles. Um, so what we do is we, we, again, we'll, we'll use a machine, um, we use the junior hack attack and we'll set them up and we'll shoot a, a little, you know, 25 or 30 foot ground ball. And we're just working on very, very specific, um, pre-catch foot patterns and the way that we're going to try to catch the, the ground ball. Sometimes it's with our right foot forward. Sometimes it's with our left foot forward. Sometimes we're raking through it. Sometimes we're running through it. Um, uh, and, and we, we, we create, you know, like I said, 10 or 12 different styles uh, and really try to provide them with as many options as possible. Now for the players in the training environment, a lot of the times it's really uncomfortable. Um, when you ask them to do something that they're not used to doing, well, I know I never don't catch ground balls that way. Well, I know you don't, but that's why we're teaching you, right? Like, so when, when an opportunity does arise that you can pull this tool out of your bag. Um, and I guess the best way to kind of describe this is that we're trying to, and with as many tools for their tool about, like you said, but we're also trying to provide them the proper tool for the proper job. Right. Like, I think that's the big piece for us is that a lot of times, um, and I know I was guilty of this as a player and I was probably guilty of this as a young coach teaching this to guys, but you, they, they find what works for them and they just, and they just stick with it. And the problem is, is if they're anything like I was as a player, and I, and I said this on another podcast the other night, um, that, you know, if, if you're only providing them with one tool and the job is to, uh, screw in a screw, but all you have is a hammer. You know, if they're anything like I was, I would just beat the hell out of that thing and until it was done, right? Well, the problem is, is that's not the best tool for that job, right? So we're trying to provide them with just different options. Um, and then what happens is when we go into the our what we call our representative design or individual defense, which is later in the days, typically in spring training, 
um, we kind of just set them free. And, and what you'll see guys do is they'll make a backhand play and they'll stop and they'll talk to another player or they'll talk to a coach and they'll go, you know, that might've been a time where I could have tried that other one where in the training environment, it didn't make a lot of sense, but when they get out on the dirt, full speed, full length, um, full pace that it starts to become more apparent to them. Like, okay, that makes a little bit more sense to me of why we train that backhand a specific way. Um, and it's not that we w- don't, we don't want to change the player's style, right? We want the player's style to remain his style, but what we want is to be able to have versatility within that style. Um, and, and what we're trying to do is just provide them with as many options or as many tools as possible. And we do that on the backhand front. We do it on the forehand front. We do it on double plays. Um, and the way that we teach those, um, we, we talk a lot about tag plays and how we can create versatility within our bodies on tag plays. Um, and, and again, we call them movement solutions because it's like a math problem, right? We know the answer. Like you said, the answer to the problem is to record outs. That's the ultimate answer. And and it doesn't matter how we get to the answer as long as we get the answer. And, and we tell our guys that all the time, look, record outs and we don't really care what it looks like, but we wouldn't be doing our jobs, or at least I don't think we would be doing our jobs if we didn't try to provide them with as many different solutions to that problem as possible. Um, and, and we spend time on that. And I think the players really enjoy it because they, they, they get challenged in their work. They get, um, they get to try new things and, and it's never the same every morning. It's something different. One day it's backhands, one day it's tag plays, one day it's on the run, one day it's, um, targeting skills, one day it's, um, you know, post catch foot patterning. And we just kind of change it up every day and kind of keep it fresh. And, and, um, I think they come out kind of excited. Like, what are we doing today? What, what else are we going to learn today? Or, or how are we going to attack today of, of getting better? So we just try to, again, just try to provide as many tools as possible. Yeah. We talk a lot, you know, you and I and and infield play, especially in the winter months when we're cooped up, but Mm kind of like we're back in that right now, but we talk a lot about time and space of of things as infield coaches. And and I think that's the biggest thing. And I, I know on this podcast, we've talked about the game always remaining the same right 90 foot base pass 60 foot mm-hmm. six all those things remain the same um but the speed of the game increases and i think a lot of younger players they get caught in having one way of doing things and it always works for them and all of a sudden you get to 13 year old ball or 16 year old ball or college ball and all of a sudden that play doesn't work anymore that guy's five right. foot past it um and those type of things so, so talk maybe a little bit about time and space how that maybe relates at at the pro level and maybe how you've seen it at, at the younger levels of, of being a, a problem. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, we talk a lot about, um, uh, rhythm, tempo and timing, right. And, and how we, and how we teach that in our players and how we try to maintain rhythm. And, and the way that we define rhythm is, is constant movement and constant motion, right? It, it's some, it's an object that's moving at, in, in, in space, but it's moving at a, a pretty constant rate. Um, and then we talk about tempo, and, and having the ability to change that rate, right. And how we can, how we can move at, at various speeds. And then timing is obviously timing to um, your intersection point and being on time um, for a quality catch. So um, we spent a lot of time talking about that. Um, I think one thing that I know I was definitely guilty of as a young coach. And I, and I think a lot of coaches are probably guilty of this. And in fact, I, I did a webinar last night and, and this question got brought up a, a, a couple of times. Um, you know, asking us to talk about kind of glove rolls and, and or quarter turns and those types of things, um, pre-catch movements from the glove. And I think a lot of coaches are guilty of trying to remove those skill sets from players. 
And what we try to do is actually enhance those skill sets. So we're actually trying to tell our guys, look, we want to encourage you to glove roll. We want to encourage you to quarter turn um, your thumb um, or whatever the whatever you guys the terminology that you want to use um, on those types of moves. And the reason we do that is if we're promoting rhythm, the hands are a major form of rhythm, right? So why would we try to remove a form of rhythm while we're trying to promote rhythm? So um, I think the thing that needs to be talked about more is not necessarily removing that skill set, but enhancing that skill set and improving the timing in which it happens. So kind of the rule of thumb that we, we try to tell our guys is, is two thirds of ball flight that the glove roll needs to be started and, and is starting to get into a, a glove presentation area to where it can catch the ball. Um, another good kind of, if you're the shortstop or second baseman, another visual we use is kind of the, the grass dirt line. By the time the ball crosses from the grass into the dirt is the time that our glove should be, um, kind of getting its eyes on the ball and, and presenting itself to the ball. Um, and, and that's something that, might be a little bit different than what we teach, but again, I really think it's, it's an important piece of, of rhythm that we want to try to, uh, enhance, right. And, and not remove from, from their skill set. And then when we talk about tempo, I think this is, is, is tempo and timing kind of work together. And I think this is where a lot of the issues happen with, with infielders at all levels. And this is including in the big leagues, uh, some of the best players on the planet. Um, I think a lot of times, uh, from infield coaching standpoint, we're, we always telling our guys, Hey, go faster, be fast, go fast, create distance and direction and, and, and be really quick at what you do. And when you do that, you, you put it in the brain of the player that I need to get going towards my target, right? I need to get on in direction and, um, um, and, and create some distance from my target before I throw. And the problem with that is, is that when your tempo, when you play with the too high of a tempo, a lot of times it's on a routine ground ball. And I think this is probably the most common mistake. And I know Kelly, we've talked about this a lot um, over the last couple of years is that the, the infielders overplay the ball, right? They play past the ball. And I think the overwhelming majority of fielding errors, at least in my opinion, are balls that are left behind the infielder kind of off the right hip or behind the right knee on the dirt. And the problem with that is, 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 is if you think about uh, your left hand, kind of just coming directly up in front of your left shoulder and letting your hand just kind of hang there. That's a very natural feeling area for your hand to be in. But if you move your hand across to, to your right shoulder, you now have to supernate your thumb much further to keep your, your glove open to the ball. And you really shrink down the catch surface of that glove. And it becomes really hard to catch balls clean and target them clean and the transfer them clean. So we spent a lot of time talking, about that exact thing, right? Catching the ball left of center. And, and we keep it really, really simple and say, hey, just catch the ball in front of your left eye, right? And, and if we can do that um, in rhythm, our tempo should take care of itself because we're, we're focused on catching the ball left of center and our timing should be on time um, at that intersection point, again, because we're, we're just trying to make it as simple as possible. Um, but I think that's a really, really common mistake out of, all infielders, right. And at, at all levels. And we see it even in, in pro ball. Um, and you know, one thing that I've, I have learned over the last, I, I would say 12 or 18 months kind of on this front is, is for a long time, I taught a pretty specific, uh, pre-catch foot pattern. And I think I'm kind of going away from that. The more that I spend time with some of these elite players and kind of see how they do things. And there are times when the left foot's going to be forward and there are times when the left foot's going to be behind the right foot and um, trying to, again, trying to be okay with both 
um, but enhance those moves based on where we are on the dirt, what position we're playing. Um, I think it's unrealistic to tell our shortstop to catch a ground ball with his left foot behind his right, um, even though that might give him the best opportunity for his right foot to get directional. Um, it, it's just, it's a tough angle, but the second baseman would be the exact opposite, right? It would be kind of awkward to tell him to catch a ground, a routine ground ball right at him with his left foot in front of his right. So, um, so we're, we're trying to, we're trying to notice that and, and try to find ways to enhance those moves and, and work around those, those angles, um, and how we can still catch a ball left of center in front of the left eye with the left foot slightly forward, which is very challenging and, and it's a tough move, but it is something that we, we try to, again, provide another option um, or another way to accomplish a task for all of our infielders. So I guess, you know, we've talked to a couple of high school kids or coaches lately, and they, we talk about curating chaos in, their, in the high school level of practice. Yeah. Is there much of that? I would assume probably more spring training than when you're in the regular season, but do you guys do much of that at the team level? Yeah, so we – yeah, we – we don't get too crazy. Um, I think the biggest piece for us is we have such a long season, right? Like, uh, getting, creating too much chaos at times, uh, can get us, uh, into a trouble with just workload. You know, when these guys are out there every single day for literally seven months, right? Like seven or eight months. So, um, we don't get too crazy, but when we do do, um, our individual work, we try to, we try to create environments that are competitive. We also try to create um, versatile environments and we do a couple of different training styles. So, um, sometimes we do very block oriented training where we're just literally shooting a ground ball at them. And it's a very, very basic drill. Um, we're working on very, very specific patterning or, or catch targeting or whatever it is. It's just a really, really specific skill set. But the way that we change those environments is sometimes we'll add constraints, i.e., training gloves, right. And different size of training gloves, big and small. Um, the other thing that we do, and, and one of the things I've kind of fallen in love with lately over the last probably 18 months is, is what we call differential training. And we use different size of balls. Um, we use softballs, we use seven inch baseballs, we use weighted balls, seven ounce and three ounce balls. Um, and what we do is that what that does, we even use tennis balls, lacrosse balls. So we use all kinds of different balls that react differently. Um, and also provide a lot of different feedback. So if we're talking specifically about glove targeting and how we want to catch a ground ball specifically on a two hand catch and where we want to target that in our glove, when we, when we shoot those balls out of a machine or we hit them with a fungo, they're very used to the five ounce ball and that provides the fill that they're used to filling. But when you hit them a three ounce ball and they catch it. It's almost like catching a, a wiffle ball. Like they're so light that it provides very, very little feedback. And it's, it becomes, it actually makes the drills significantly harder to where they have to be very aware of, of what their hands are doing in space, the proprioception of their hands and the way that their hands are transferring baseballs. They have to be very in tune with that. Now, the reverse of that is, is when you shoot a seven ounce ball at them, it's like catching a cannonball, right? It, it provides a huge amount of feedback. And when they catch it bad, they get an automatic feedback. Okay. I didn't catch that where I wanted to. That's why I fumbled the transfer slightly, even though it wasn't major, there was a slight fumble on the transfer, which could just, uh, could you, um, put you out of sync for throwing. Right. So, uh, we do a lot of, again, proprioception training, um, with weights. Um, we do differential training with different weighted balls and different size balls. We do glove training. Um, when we were add constraints to the size of the gloves that they use, um, but then when we go out, um, in the afternoons and I, and I just mentioned this a little bit earlier, but we, we really try to make it as representative as possible. 
So some days we'll do uh, pace days where we'll use senior hack attacks and just sit them on the ground and shoot 95 mile an hour ground balls on them where we're just working on pace um, and trying to make that as realistic as possible. And, and, and again, I, I think I hit a pretty good fungo, but I can't hit a 95 mile an hour ground ball over and over and over again like it does happen in a game. So we use machines for that. Um, and if we don't use a machine, we do what we call drop ball. And what drop ball is, is essentially instead of the fungo guy throwing a ball up to himself and hitting it, we have somebody toss it to him and, and try to hit it. And we actually use regular bats when we do that instead of fungos. And a couple of different reasons why we do that is, one, we're trying to get our players to read body posturing of the hitter to try to predict where the ball is going to go before contact is actually made. So it makes it as game-like as possible. And what we found with the lighter fungo, there's a, there's a tendency for uh, the coaches to hit backspin ground balls, which just never happen, right? Almost every ground ball is, is topspin. I would say 95% of ground balls are hit with topspin. And I don't know that number for sure, but it, it's got to be up there. Um, so by using a regular bat, what we found is, again, the pace is a little bit slower than maybe we would like it to be on, on a regular basis, but it feels very true, right? The ground ball feels like a game-style ground ball. It's three or four hops. Um, they're repeatable hops and, and they, it feels like a game. So, um, but we really try to be really specific with our, with our stuff and we don't try to create too much chaos. We try to make it as representative as possible. I think when you make, um, and I used to fall into this category for sure. When I was a young coach, like, let's just go nuts. Let's make sure everybody's moving and that we're staying active. And, and just because guys are moving around and they seem busy doesn't necessarily mean that they're getting good work. So, um, I think there's a lot of studies out there and a lot of books out there that, you know, are saying that, you know, when you talk about, uh, creating skills, you know, you got to try to make it as game-like as possible. And the more game-like we can make it, um, the more the players have the ability to create skills and then obtain those skills through the training environment. Coach, could you uh, emphasize a little bit more on the base running aspect of the game? You know, I, I think personally, a lot of games are won or lost just based on poor base running. And right. So, go ahead. Yeah, no. Yeah. So like as a younger coach, especially when I was, you know, doing 18 year old baseball and, and, and high school age stuff, like it was, it was like our primary focus. Like we're just going to, we're going to dominate on the bases. We're going to, we're going to steal, you know, over a hundred bags a summer. We're going to go first to third. Uh, we're going to steal third base. We're going to score from first. We're going to score from second. And, and we're going to, we're going to train our guys how to do it. Um, we're going to teach them how to slide and be creative with their slides and, and, and how to swim slide and hook slide. And, um, and, and we kind of went nuts with that. And, and all the way up until I came to the twins, that was kind of my mentality is like, we're going to just really dominate on the base pass, um, and, and really teach our guys, uh, not only how to run the bases, but how to be extremely aggressive and take advantage of average to be a low average defense. Um, uh, one thing I want you to do, uh, just the defenders are just too good, right? The, the, the arms are too good. The, the throws are too accurate. Um, and, and the, the defense, the ability to play defense is significantly better. So my mindset has changed a little bit on the base running front. Um, and, and the, the, the as much analytic information as I handle, right? So we try to add an element of analytics into our base running, but I, I've to believe yeah, at the professional level that I think it's really important for your base running philosophies to match your offensive philosophies um, when, when all things are equal, um, you know, on, on, in the game. So, and what I mean by that is if, if you're a team that's going to bunt slash hit and run, 
and, and do those types of things. Like first is crucial, right? Being having the ability to steal bases and get extra nineties is crucial. Um, but if your your offensive velocity is doubles and homers, um, to me it doesn't make a lot of sense to try to steal a lot of bags. Um, just because analytically, you know, you got to still you got to be able to steal second base at like a seventy two percent clip for it to actually help you gain runs over the course of a game or over the course of a season, and and that's hard to do, right? That's really hard to do. I don't care how good you are. That's that's really hard to do. So I think it's really important to to think about. Obviously, quality base running is important, but the aggression in which you run and the decision making and that which you're trying to create, I think is, is very crucial and it should match your offense philosophy. So we've kind of gone with this is, is we pay a lot of attention to route running and that's, that's something that's really important to me and that we've kind of um, adopted over the last probably 18 months, right before I went to the twins, the winter before I, I kind of dove into this pretty good. It was something that, um, I deep down the rabbit hole and part of it can run full land all the time. Now that might mean that they're going to run a further distance. Right. And the way that we kind of describe this to our players is, is we know, we know the fastest point between a and B, right. It's a straight line. Right. But if the, but if the line is curved, the larger the circle, the straighter the line. Right. So like, and, and, and we're, what we're trying to tell our guys is one by creating larger, wider routes um, based on the batted ball outcome it also uh, provides us a larger read window and that's so we're still getting from a um, a to c the same speed if we're going home to second but we might be running a further distance and we're increasing our ability to make decisions um, on the front 90 so we talk a lot about route running and how routes might change um, on a hustle double versus a stand-up double or a first to third versus a first to home and how that initial 90 might change the route. Um, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get as tight as possible on the unguaranteed 90. So if I hit a stand-up double, it doesn't matter how, how wide I run to first or how tight I run to first and how tight I run to second. It's how tight I can get the third. So we're trying to pr- create a route that is tight, wide, tight, right? So I'm tight home to first first to second so i can create the best possible route and run full speed the entire time but also as i'm running um through the apex of my turn which is kind of if i'm thinking about a triple here is somewhere between first and second that we're we're expanding the time that the player has an opportunity to make the read and the appropriate read for that route um i think a lot of times we're so consumed i I saw a drill on twitter the other day um you know, and it was, they were running these really, really tight circles and it, it does cr- teach players how to cr- create turn and cut. The problem with that is, is they're never running full speed. Like the smaller the circle that you run, you're, run, you're only running at like a 70% clip or an 80% clip and you're really fighting yourself. Lateral forces are real things, right? Like the faster I run and the more I turn, the, the more I have the possibility of blowing out my, my cleats in the dirt. Or, you know, I think it's really common to see guys get bucked offline, right? They'll, they'll run in a really flat line to, to, to first base, and they're trying to run a hustle double. And next thing you know, what's their route from first to second? It's extremely wide, right? It just bucks them out because they're running full speed and their body's just not capable of maintaining the lateral force that's put on them. So um, we spent a lot of time talking about that and, and less about aggression right? Because we want them, we need our guys, our, our offensive velocity, obviously 307 home runs last year, right? We stole the least amount of bases in the big leagues and, and had the least amount of stolen base attempts, but scored, I think the third most runs in baseball. 
So for us, in order to score a bunch of runs, bases from homers, so it helps us in the run. Necessarily help it kills us if we get thrown at, right? So because the next guy hits a homer, you only get one instead, right? So um, we need our guys. We want our guys to be aggressive, but we also want our guys to be really. Uh, they got to be safe, right? Got to know. And they're they're going to be safe to the next summer. Um, but if they, if continue a level, we're to burst the third and running faces and and and. But I think the running stuff is is a big piece at even at even. Are talking about aggression. All right, let's let's change topics a little bit. Uh, let's talk a little bit about arm development as a whole. Um, I know you and I went back and forth a little about some long toss play. You had guys on before they got to spring training, um, mm-hmm. throwing plans with that. And then maybe if you want to uh, dive in a little bit on throwing angles. I know we talk a lot about the most efficient angles possible. Um, conventional side that I need fingers on top of the ball at all times and pull that right. thing down because I'm going to be have the most control of it. But talk about maybe some of your findings there and, and how the long toss has, has helped develop that. Yeah. So, yeah. So we, we, um, this is a topic that we're currently trying to grow in and I, I, am not afraid to admit this is not a, an area of strength for me when we talk a lot about throwing program stuff and, and, but I'm lucky to be surrounded by some coaches that have some pretty good ideas. And, and what we're trying to do is, um, I guess to start here, we kind of asked all of our guys, um, one, one day in one of the meetings, you know, who here wants to have a stronger arm and every guy, raise their hand and then we're like, okay, who wants to have a healthier arm? And every guy raised their hand and I'm like, okay, well, here's what we need to do. We need to long toss and we need to long toss, you know, three days a week. Um, and, and a couple reasons there, I think, I think, uh, by, by long tossing, I think you just create more athletic arms. Um, you, you allow the shoulder capsule to kind of work, um, in full range of motion. You allow, um, the body to sync up and, you know, to try to unload a ball and throw it as high and as far as you possibly can. And, um, what we've kind of found is, is that, you know, along the way, some guys just aren't very good at it. And that even in the professional level that we need to spend more time with them, um, you know, and, and, and saying, Hey, look, man, like you can't just go out there and flip the ball 90 feet five times and, and expect to go make a 145 foot throw in the six hole and throw a guy out. So, um, you know, we got to throw the ball high and hard a little bit more to, to help with that. And again, this is an area that we are still currently trying to grow in and, and, and figure out what the best option is, is, you know, for me, you know, some of the challenges we have from the professional side is, is again, these guys have to do it every night, right. They have to play every single night, um, through, through the entire summer. And it's, you know, when we start talking about a 147 game schedule for our minor leaguers, plus spring training, plus the playoffs, plus postseason camps, uh, mini camps or, or extended or the Arizona fall league. Some of these guys are going to play 175, 200 games, you know, so the workload is, is something that we're very cautious about and, and, and it kind of proposes a real issue with us. But if I'm, if I'm a high school coach and I'm, I'm playing a, a 25 game schedule um, in the spring or 30 game schedule in the spring, you know, I'm having our guys long toss probably every other day and really stretching it out as far as they can. And um, I think that's one of the best ways to, to create arm strength and, and some durability and some arm health, I think most importantly. Um, and then, you know, um, Tyler Smartslock, who's my, my, uh, one of my 
infield coaches, you know, we were talking about this exact thing the, uh, the other day and he, he made a great comment and he said, you know, going out is for your, for your arm and coming back in is for your feet. And I thought that was just a brilliant way to look at catch play, right? We stretch it out on the way out. We go high and hard and, and you know, we're trying to get our arm loose. And then on the way back in, we can get more skill specific with our feet and start working um, synchronization with the feet and the hand and making it skill specific for that player and his position. So if it's your infielders, um, one thing that we used to do um, when I was in the college side is we would try to match up um, our, our skill or our task that day with what our team defense was going to be. So if we were doing cut relays, for instance, when we were at um, 100 or 185 feet or 200 feet, we would do just turn around pull downs, right? Like we we're doing a cut relay to the plate or into third base or something. Um, and then, and then inside that we would do, um, you know, another pull down, but we would try to glove to glove it without a one hop. Um, if it was a, if it was a double play day and we knew that we were going to do a lot of double play work or something, we might do a lot of quick catch and transfer work and, and, and angle throwing and, and those types of things. So I think it's important that you, you know, try to associate the task with the team defense that day. And then the other thing that I like about this is, and I, and this is what I would do at the time is, is if, if we were doing a cut relay day, we would play catch and then we would immediately go into cut relays so they could get those four or five reps prior to actually doing it on the, on the surface full speed with runners or, or with a walkthrough or whatever it was. So um, I, I think with catch play, I think, you know, it, it's certainly a time of practice where we can take advantage to learn things and try to uh, associate tasks and, and get players to um, to work on things. But I also think it's really important to remember this, that it's also designed as a warm up. Right. It's it's you know, a lot of guys don't just go hit on the field before doing some kind of T work or some kind of cage work prior to just hitting on the field. Right. So it is it is a warm up time. And it should be used as such, but I think you can also associate tasks once you get out of that warm-up phase, um, and and you know really help guys get better um, with specific skill sets when it comes to throwing. And then as far as you know, angle throwing or slot throwing, um, you know, I think that's kind of been a hot topic over the last year or two, especially on the infield side. And you know, talking about creating players or uh, giving players the opportunity to throw from multiple slots. Um, we've actually gone away from that, that term slots. And one thing that we talk a lot about is posturing. Um, we talk a lot about chest posturing and head posturing. I think what happens when you talk about slot changing is the player immediately assumes that the arm has to change the slot, which it does, but the body has to posture differently too to change that slot. So we talk a lot about, uh, posturing now instead of, instead of slot changing. And, and we've had pretty good success with that. Um, we've had some players, um, with the twins over the last year, you know, that are um, a couple of high school draft guys that come straight out of high school and, and are trying to spin the ball. Like you said, Kelly, kind of trying to 12, six the ball across the diamond. And, and we know like that's for sure the best way to create the most carry, right. Is to spin the ball really efficiently 12 to six. The problem is, is it just never happens. I'm just not even really sure it's a real thing to be quite honest. And uh, from an infield standpoint. And um, so we talk about, spin efficiency and having the ability to spin the ball really clean, but that doesn't mean necessarily 12 to six. We're, we're, we're trying to encourage our guys to kind of left and left to right the ball across the diamond. And it's okay to do that. What we're trying to prevent is, is sinking the ball. So as the ball's working left to right, that we're trying to stay off of that left hip or that left knee for that right hand at first baseman, because that really gets them into that danger zone of, of handcuffing them um, and trying to keep the ball higher head high, 
um, and, and it's okay to run it, just don't sink it. And so we talk a lot about wrist posturing, um, uh, chest posturing, head posturing, and how we can create extension um, without cueing them to stay on top or to stay behind the ball. Um, in fact, we try to not say those things at all to our guys. I think those are those cues make a lot of sense, but I also think of those cues those cues at times can be more detrimental to a player than than they are to help him. And for a couple of different reasons, when you tell a player to get on top of the ball, that automatically makes them think that my fingers have to get directly on top of the ball. And that's just simply not true um, from what we're seeing from edutronic slow motion throwing stuff like the guys that get on top of the ball typically have a really hard time throwing the ball on target. Um, the guys that throw more of the side of the ball or more of the bottom of the ball, for instance, have a much better uh, time throwing the ball on target. Um, the velocities might be a little bit lower, but their, their accuracy is significantly higher um, and their ability to spin the ball is a lot better um, just because their, their wrist is in a much more neutral state uh, to their forearm um, versus, you know, their forearm being in a slot and their wrist really working hard to get the fingers on top. So um, I think you got to be careful sometimes with the cues that you use um, and, and, you know, try to understand that in, in a perfect world, 12 to 6 spin is, is ideal, but it's just really hard to do. And, and in fact, it just very, very rarely happens, if ever. Um, so queuing, you know, just be cautious of those types of things. You know, I think we talked a lot about, uh, from the pitching side, how guys are so different from their arm slots. I mean, you look at a, a Kershaw compared mm-hmm. to a, you know, a, a submarine pitcher in the back end of a bullpen. I, I think we see the same thing in, in infielders sometimes that, that guys have different natural arm slots that they throw they throw from and you mm-hmm. just talked there a little bit about that desired ball flight do you think that a guy's um preposition you know what he's built with what he can do physically with his arm spot do you think that that desired outcome of a throw uh is is capable at different angles uh that guys might naturally throw from yeah, I think for sure. Yeah, I think I think I think the best thing to do for your players is to keep them in their most natural arm slot as possible, which means posture changing, right? If you if you need a guy to if he's on the run and he needs to sink his slot down, it means his chest and his head needs to stay lower to the ground. If you need him to work that slot higher, then the T-spine will get much taller and the head will work a little bit more over over the left shoulder, right? So we talk more about those things than we actually do talk about changing the arm slot because the last thing we want our guys to do is work really hard to catch a ground ball um and and work really hard to create distance and direction and proper foot patterns and then all the last second say oh i got to get on top of this and and try to do something that they're not capable of doing and you see that a lot i think that's why the overwhelming majority of errors are throwing errors and uh it's it's most most errors are, are just simply that they're just throwing errors especially at the youth level like they we spend so much time telling our guys to get on top of balls and 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 behind balls that that's what they're thinking about instead of just throwing a ball on target and and that's what we talk about, man. Just throw it on his chin. I don't care how it gets there. I don't care what the movement is. I don't care really how you spin it. I want it to end up right on his chin. And when you do that, they just, you know, um, not to use buzzwords, but these guys just kind of naturally organize their bodies to, to accomplish the task. And, and that's where we try to really in, um, encourage our guys to, to play with what we call creative freedom, right? Like we're, we're not going to tell you that you have to do it this exact way. We want you to do it to where – you can accomplish the task. And that's, again, like 
if you're a coach out there and, and guys are recording outs, but and you're saying every time they do it, but but you could have spun the ball better, or you could have done this better, or you could have done that better. I just don't know that's the best route. Um, you know, it, it maybe the next day you could go back, you know, and and watch the film or 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 talk about it, you know, of how we can enhance it. Like, look, nice job last. you know, to, to constantly kind of beat on your guys for recording outs, I think is, is a poor move. And, and we spent a lot of time just talking about, you know, just recording outs and making it simple, right. Throw the ball on his chin. And, and, you know, um, if, if we have guys that have throwing issues, then we'll pull out an edutronics and we'll, we'll put it behind them and we'll try to see how their fingers are interacting with the ball and what their wrist angles look like. And, and we'll try to make changes, but it's really, really hard to do. It's really hard to do on the infield front. And, and we're trying to – I spent a lot of time talking to our pitching coaches and our pitching coordinators um, and trying to just get insight on, on how finger lengths and the way that guys hold balls and the way that their, their fingers interact with the ball and maybe kick balls off access when they throw them, which will change the way that the ball reacts um, in its flight. Will it sink? Will it carry? Will it run? In, in some scenarios, will it cut? Um, and I think that's – Another thing, too, when you tell a guy to get on top of a ball a lot of time, they cut the ball a lot more than you want them to. They, they end up throwing kind of a, a gyro spiral like a football, and they really cut the ball, um, which if you're a first baseman and you're expecting the ball to go left to right and all of a sudden it goes right to left, you know, it gets a little bit funky for you over there. So we try to, again, just kind of let them be as as natural as possible and, and talk more about the posturing and the slotting. You know, I so I was able to see you speak at the first Barnstormers Clinic there at UW, and talking about you know when teaching your third baseman if you're going to have tail on this, just learn how to play your tail. And you know, I was it was this year I could see it click with our infielders, and I was saying, you know what, I don't care how you guys get it there, but just know how it's going to work for you. And right. when I said that to him, it was almost a uh, like a calmness went over all our infielders, and they were like, it, it just led into a great infield session, and guys were it's- calm and they weren't trying to do too much yeah it's almost just like relief right Uh, oh i just get to be myself right i don't have to do exactly what he thinks is right for me right and i think that's that's true coaching for me right there it's like giving them the freedom to figure it out for themselves and and throwing in your two cents when it's needed um if if there's constant issues then that's when we can jump in as coaches and and try to make a change right um uh, a grip change a slot change a posture change whatever it might be um it's not uncommon to see I, like Jorge Polanco, for instance, if, if you guys, if anybody got a chance to watch him play much, you know, we in, in 2018 had some real throwing issues. And in 2019, we just dropped his slot down and said, Hey, we just want you to throw the ball more sidearm. Um, and that seemed to really help him just because it was a much more natural move for him somewhere along the way. Somebody had been telling him to get on top of the ball or behind the ball. Uh, and that's all he tried to do. And he really struggled to command the ball across the diamond and to put it on target. So uh, we made a very simple, um, uh, posture and slight, uh, slight um, arm adjustment in the slot change, and 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 it helped him tremendously. And we've done that with some other infielders um, in the minor leagues with us. But um, for the most part, we're just saying we're trying to embrace what they do, and and try to encourage them to continue to do it if they do it well, and and not try to again try to reinvent the wheel and try to create problems where there aren't problems. Um, and I asked my my pitching coordinators this. Um, this last winter and said, Hey, how many guys in our org from a pitching standpoint can actually 12 spin a fast or 12, six spin a fastball. And the answer was zero. 
none of them can do it. And the guys that are the closest to doing it, the, of the three or four guys that are really close to doing it, they they have horrible ability to throw strikes. They just buckshot the ball all over the place and just can't throw the ball on target at all. And I found that really interesting because of what we're trying to do or the, the old conventional teach for infield is to do that. And, and the overwhelming majority of throwing of errors are throwing errors, right? So that is that directly reflect, is that a direct reflection of what we're teaching our players just because physics tells us that the ball is going to go straighter. It's going to go further. Doesn't mean that it's the most optimal or the best option for what we're the, the task that we're trying to accomplish. Right. So that's kind of where my mind is at right now. Uh, Coach, how much do you guys emphasize on the ready, readiness of the pitch with your infielders? Yeah, um, you know we we see this in high school a lot. Gloves on the side or out, you know, hanging in front of them, and they think they got quick reaction to the the ball in play. But typically, they, you could see that that doesn't always is the case. Uh, even at the collegiate level, you still have some struggles with that. So, how do you guys emphasize that? It, it is it is it is our number one priority with the twins is, is pre-pitch and, and what we call range advancement. Um, it is where we spend probably the overwhelming majority of our teach time is, is look, if, if the goal again is to record outs, we want to record more outs, which means we got to get to more baseballs. Um, and there's, there's some techniques that we use to do that. Um, and there's, but there's also some timing techniques that in which we try to use to, to do this too. And uh, I really went down this rabbit hole pretty deep, man, over the last probably three or four years. And, and really over the last 18 months, I've really kind of really dove into this and, and tried to understand it and see what some of the best, best players on the planet are doing. And then also how we can use um, cameras, um, video, uh, and a lot of different things to try to enhance this. And what I think a lot of players don't understand and a lot of coaches don't understand and some of the things that we found, um, I kind of had this intuition um, maybe four or five years ago and kind of rolled with it and decided that I better do some research on this to really kind of hammer the point home, um, at least for me and and, and my teaching points to my players. But what we kind of found was the old conventional teach of being in the ground or, or hopping versus not hopping or creeping or having some kind of pre-pitch movement is, is that the timing of that all happening is absolutely crucial. And what a lot of players don't understand is one, the stretch shortening cycle of how muscles actually work um, with the eccentric and concentric moves of those muscles and creating slack and almost thinking like a spring, right. And, and, and letting a spring kind of bounce. And if you spend, if you set a spring on the table and you just sat it there, well, it wouldn't bounce at all, right? But if I if I lift it up and drop it, there it might bounce a little bit. But if I push that spring into the ground, which is called impulse force, and let that spring go, it's going to launch itself off the table. So what we know is working into an eccentric move or almost thinking of like a squat, right? If I had, let's say this is an egregious amount of weight, but say I had 400 pounds on, on a squat bar, 500 pounds on a squat bar, and I started at the top and I went down and was able to push it back up versus just starting it all the way down at the very bottom would i be able to even get it off the rack and the answer is probably no right the the um the ability to rebound moves i think is is really crucial when we talk about the muscles and the slack in muscles and how we create contractions of muscles and, and again that spring um so hopping i think is for us is the move um we try to 
you know, hop two or three inches off the ground. And some guys hop a little bit higher and some guys hop a little bit lower based on the depth in which they're playing. Uh, but here's the most crucial piece of this is, is, is the timing. And I think, again, the conventional teacher of this is probably to land at or slightly before contact. And I, and, and I think a lot of us, that makes a lot of sense, right? I need to be in the ground in order to react to the direction of the ground ball. Here's the problem with that, and or at least here's my problem, and I would challenge guys to think about this, is, is reaction time is a very real thing, and understanding how reaction time actually works and what it needs, right? And what, and what I've kind of found through a, a number of different studies of through myself and not necessarily reading studies, but um, kind of running experiments um, um, with other – I mean, last winter I was down with uh, Kelly last year with his guys kind of running an experiment with them. Um, with an app that we had and and trying to figure out how the brain and the eyes actually process information and I think that's a really key piece of this is that the first first thing we need to understand is that our what vision actually is and how vision actually works in our brains and how we turn an image or the light bouncing off an object into a reaction and that entire process I won't get super nerdy on you guys but that entire process takes somewhere between 215 and 275 milliseconds um, which is a lot longer than you think. So what happens is if we land um, at or before contact on video, what you'll see is, is a very clear slight hesitation out of that player. It's that, that hesitation is their brain processing the information. And then what happens is when they're processing that information, they're working into the concentric move. So they're actually working up and then their brain processes it. And what do they have to redo to now move? They have to go back down to make their official move. So now they're, they're moving way more um, than they want to do or than they want to, but they're not going anywhere. So what we did is we changed the timing of that. And we asked our players to actually be in the air at contact or slightly descending. So the, the cue that we actually tell them is we want you to be at the top of your hop at contact. And what we found was as players were descending that, that 215 milliseconds was taking place and they were starting to react to the batted ball direction before they landed. So their heads were getting directional. They were, they were able to land and react with zero hesitation. Um, and again, I'm lucky enough to have um, some systems and some ballparks that track our, our range and stuff and our range um, from 2018 to 2019 significantly increased. There's a stat on baseball savant. It's called, um, OAA, which is outs above average. Um, we have an internal statistic that we run, which is very similar and it's called plays above average. Um, pretty much the same exact uh, statistic. And in, in 2018, um, before I was with the twins, we were playing at a negative plays above average as an org, um, in the minor leagues. And then when I came in and we changed this and we added, um, the timing, a different timing mechanism, we saw major increases in, in our plays above average, um, about 20 plays above average um, as a group. And we significantly increased our run saved above average um, by about, by about, I think it was by 17 runs or something like that, which in the course of a season is a really, really big deal. So um, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong, but what we have found um, through the analytics is that we've seen pretty major advancements in our range. Um, and it's, it's probably the most crucial piece that we talk about and, and, and really make our number one priority. Um, um, and, and again, the way we kind of look at this is, is range advancement to us is not necessarily making web gyms, right? Um, 
every ground ball that we get, we have a play, a play probability associated to it. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to make a 75% play probability and 85 or 90, 95%. So we're really trying to open up the umbrella of routine in our range, um, not necessarily trying to make web gems, um, which those those matter too, right? And you get huge credit if you make a 20% out probability, you get 80% credit, right? So you get that really helps your scores. Um, but at the end of the day, we're trying to, we're trying to catch that, that 60, 70 percenter at an 80 percent clip. Talk about hand position. Uh, I, I know it's kind of going back to, to where you started with this deal, but for some of those younger coaches, what's the hand position? And, and maybe where are the changes between a middle infielder and a corner infielder? Yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah, so we, we try to just ask our guys to have their hands as close to their hips. Um, in an area that they're, they're going to run from, I think it's really common to see infielders, you know, get into their pre-pitch and then get their glove down towards the ground or really far away from their belt buckle. And, and the problem with that is, is as soon as the ball is put in play, what does that hand have to do? It has to drop back to your hips and, and to get into an area to, to, to run essentially. Right. So, um, we try to get our guys to have their hands as close to their hips as possible. We just kind of say, Hey, put your hands in your holsters um thumbs up um and and yeah we do teach different techniques based on each position so third and first versus the middle infielders um and this is where it gets a little bit sticky for us because we shift about as much as anybody in baseball so our third basements actually play a heavy majority of their day at shortstop if we play a heavy left-handed lineup that day um so we have to actually teach them multiple uh techniques um and and we have to practice it a lot um because the timing changes a little bit and how tall they play. So we typically ask our middle infielders to, to stay pretty tall. Um, and, and obviously if they come in filled in or something that they would get a much wider base, but our corner infielders, and we, we try to say if you're inside 95 feet, um, I think beyond the 95 foot mark or the hundred foot mark, they can play a little bit higher and they can kind of focus a little bit more, uh, North and South, um, or maybe even, uh, east west and south in their movements not so much north but um but if they come into that inside that 95 foot mark they're really looking to just be able to cover slightly east and west um and and just being able to be wide and reactive at that point because that ball's going to be on them pretty quick so we teach them a, a number of different techniques um and it does change on the depth in which they're playing um but again we don't try to make it too overly complicated Talk about the shift a little bit. I know you mentioned it there. Um, I, I know you're fortunate enough to have a breadth of information uh, at the professional level. I know you can right. pull up any clip of any guy that you want at, at uh, the drop of the finger. But um, if I'm a high school coach, a summer coach, or we don't maybe don't have that data, um, how can I incorporate the shift? And, and maybe how do I practice that a little bit so guys are prepared to be in the right spot? Yeah, it's a, yeah. so I, I mean – I'm a huge fan of the shift. Obviously I'm a, I'm a defensive coach. So, I mean, anytime that we can still hits and save runs, I think that's what we want to do. So I'm a huge fan of it. Um, even when I was coaching at the 18 year old level, we shifted like crazy. Um, um, when I was coaching at the college level, we had a little bit of information, but not a lot of information. We still shifted like crazy. And I think the thing for me is, is trust your gut, right? Um, just trust your gut. If you, if you see swings that, that look like, they're going to be pull oriented swings or they're going to be inside out oppo swings Then just, just trust your gut and, and put guys where you think um, is appropriate. And for me, 
I think slight pull is, is the new standard, right? Like to, to play in a slight pull is now straight up. It doesn't make any sense to put a shortstop in the six hole with a left-handed hitter up or, or a second baseman in the four hole and with a right-handed hitter up, put them up the middle. Um, what the numbers are telling us is that most hits are stolen in the middle of the field. Um, and if you can always have somebody in the middle of the field, I think that's probably the best case scenario that, you know, you're going to put yourself in a position to record outs, but also not put yourself in uh, too many crazy positions to, to defend cut relays. Cause I think that that's one thing that goes oftenly overlooked is when you start shifting um, and you start moving guys, but you haven't practiced a cut relay with a runner on first base with three guys on the left side of the infield and a right-handed hitter and he hits it down the right field line, things can get pretty sticky. Right. So um, if you're, if you are going to shift, I think the easiest way to do it is just have your straight up, and your your slight pull and your pull pull right and just make it really simple um and you know what i used to do is i just whistle out to a guy and just move him you know just peel off a of gut um and and what my what my eyes were telling me and what my gut was telling me that this guy was going to do off this particular pitcher and, and i think that's the other piece is as a youth guy you got to kind of know your pitcher is it a high ride is a guy that kind of kind of hop the fastball through the zone um, and if that's the case, you might have a little bit more backside ground balls or as a guy that's throwing heavy sinkers in there um, or, or a bunch of breaking ball stuff, it's going to induce a lot of weak pulled ground balls, right? So um, know your guys, trust your gut, um, and, and maybe track a little bit. You know, that's one thing I did in college is I'd track every swing um, and, and where they hit the ball and, and where they swing and miss and, and try to give myself the best chance possible to make sure that I put my guys – in a really good position to record outs, which is hard to do without data. And, um, but you know, if you, if you're paying attention and, um, I think most of us feel like we got a pretty good eye and, and, and I think you just trust your gut and, and put guys where you think again, what is the best opportunity for them to record outs. Takes risk obviously to, to make a move like that. And I think it's really easy to be thrown off when, you're in a heavy shift and a guy hits a backside ground ball or yeah, right. um, maybe a guy hits the oppo fly ball um, where your gut and, and, and your info and your time spent in the game is, is telling you the other thing. So um, yeah, it's having trust, it's having faith, it's going to work. And um, I think the more information you can gather, the better, whether that's a pregame BP, whether that's a, a previous series, a previous game, maybe even on deck swings sometimes. I mean, the more observant and stuff we can be, obviously the better. Yeah, for sure. And I, that's a thing I used to do when, when I was uh, a college player as I would watch or a college coach, I would watch their, their pregame BP and, and really try to read swings and body postures and try to get a good feel. Like if, if you don't see a guy ever hit a backside ground ball in BP, I doubt he's trying to do that. Right. Um, unless it's some kind of coaching philosophy that their first round is to do that. And if that's the case, then you just pretty much um, remove that round from your memory and really try to see what they're trying to do when they're when they're getting after it. Um, where they hit the ball in the air, where they hit the ball on the ground and just trying to kind of put that in your memory bank. So you have some kind of um, information going into the game of, of where you can put guys and position guys again and put them in the best position to record outs. Coach, how, how much time do you guys spend working on the double play curves uh, there at the pro level? I mean, we talked to Coach Archer the other day, and he mentioned that that was part of their warm-up process as, as a team in, at the high school level, and he thought it was a very important aspect of their their team and, and getting Ws on the board. Yeah, every day. 
every single day we do some form of of double play work. Um, any anytime we do our our individual defense portions with the entire uh, team on the on the infield, um, we typically start with throwing the ball across the diamond, but we work really heavily on double play work. Um, the reason for that is is again we shift more than anybody in baseball, um, or as hot. I think we're in the top three in shifting last year. Um, and, and we want to make sure that our guys are comfortable turning double plays out of non-conventional, uh, areas on the field, i.e. our third baseman playing shortstop and it being a, a five, six, three double play, but it was a ground ball to the shortstop, right? So, um, or the, where the traditional shortstop position would be. So, um, we, we do it every single day, every day we do some form of double play work. Um, and, and, and then again, we do, um, in our, in our morning work and our, or our uh, early work, we do a lot of specific training on how we pattern our feet. Um, we do a lot of transfer work. Uh, again, we use the machines and the differential training in those types of settings um, and really try to, to hone in the skill sets there. But um, we, we definitely do some form of double play work every single day. Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and start wrapping this thing up. And then the question that we're going to wrap this up with you today is uh I guess I'm going to make it a two-part question. You know, this is the Northwest Fungo Banter podcast. So I guess talk a little bit about what it's like to be a part of the Northwest Coaches Fraternity. And the thing to roll off that is how cool of a deal it's going on. And there's a lot of coaches getting involved, but the ones I'm seeing are a lot of Northwest guys. And what you're doing and talk about coaches versus COVID. Yeah, yeah, this is – uh, I feel really blessed to be part of uh, a pretty cool thing right now with the the coaches in the Northwest. I, I think at one point, you know, all of us might've ended up on a, a UW field in the middle of a summer, you know, at a camp and, and some of us are in pro ball. Some of us moved on to, to head coaching jobs. Some of us are um, now head area scouts um, with kind of all over the country um, in different roles. And it's been a, a really cool ride to, to be involved in that and see, um, the Tanner Swansons of the world, the Donegal Fergus, the, the uh, Cody Atkinson's now in pro ball, the, the Kelly gal's got a head job. Um, you see some guys go away uh, um, to, to coach at big schools in other States and, and Jason Kelly now down at uh, Arizona state and Donegal Fergus was at UCSB and now is um, um, with me at the twins. And, and just, it's been this really cool uh, kind of ride to see this really close knit group of guys go out to 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 get big time jobs and and you know the guys that you don't mention there the kai Correas that are now uh a big league uh bench coach and the craig drivers that's a catching coach for the chicago cubs and you know it's it's kind of cool to see those guys i mean i remember man five or six years ago maybe not even that long ago we were coaching against each other um at an 18 year old game at enumclaw high school you know at a, a little small school uh we're actually with the high school there but uh, a little small school uh out in the middle of nowhere and and next thing you know he's um a big league bench coach you know and that's that's pretty cool um and then uh you know this coaches versus covid is just a way for us to kind of um to share our thoughts and 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 but also fundraise some money for a great cause and in the fred hutch cancer research foundation and and they're kind of you know, it's kind of near and dear to uh, me and Tanner Swanson's heart. You know, it's, uh, Swanee lost his, his older sister just uh, a year or two ago to, to breast cancer. And my wife lost her husband or her husband. That'd be me. <laughs> lost her, her, her father to uh, to melanoma skin cancer when she was younger. And and we've had some other scares in, in both of our families. And 
Um, we just thought it would be a good opportunity for us to raise some funds, um, to share some knowledge and to get some other Northwest coaches on board to, to do some online webinars. Um, and, and again, just share some information and have some fun and, and raise some money for Fred Hutch, who's also kind of leading the way and, in some research against COVID and, um, it's been a lot of fun. I think in the last, uh, uh, last day, um, yesterday, me and Swanee did, did our portions and our first webinars. And I think we've, we fundraised, um, about $2,000 between the two of us. We've fundraised a little bit over almost $6,000 together with all the coaches. Um, and, and we're, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty proud of that and, and also feel pretty blessed to be able to use our, our, you know, the thing that we love the most and, and sharing information in baseball, but also, you know, our, our platforms a little bit on social media to, uh, to just share some information and, and kind of Q and a style webinars. And, and again, just raise some funds for an incredible cause. So anybody that's listening that hasn't seen anything, where can they see this to get in? Yeah. So I think if, I think if you go to uh, Fred Hutch and, and go to their donation, you can search for the coaches versus COVID. Um, to donate, but you could also go on Twitter and search the hashtag coaches versus COVID and there'll be a lots of tweets that come up. Um, I think the, I think Craig driver will be doing a catching one. I want to say sometime this week, I'm not exactly sure of the date off the top of my head. Kai career will be doing one this week. Um, I think Cody Atkinson's doing one, um, maybe next Saturday. Um, so, um, there's, there's, uh, a bunch of them going off, um, every couple of days. Um, or at least one or two a week. And, and again, we just really encourage people to, to come hang out and listen um, on the Zoom style Q&A webinars and, and, and try to, for us, just fundraise money. We know we, we're aware that this is tough times for a lot of people, um, for most people, and that, you know, it, funds are tight. And, but, you know, if you could help us with five bucks, five bucks is five bucks to a good cause. And, and we would appreciate that. And um, we're just trying to, again, trying to make some, some headway and raising some money for a good cause. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's been a, I, I certainly thank you for joining us. It's been a good, uh, good couple hours. I know this weekend was getting tough knowing that, that we're supposed to be playing league double headers on Saturday. We're not. So uh, thank you for taking yeah. time out of your busy day. Cause I know we're, we're all pretty slammed right now. So, but no, thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Yeah, and, exactly. and uh, you know, until uh, thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate you guys having me on and, and hopefully we, uh, Hopefully, uh, you know, we're able to provide a little bit of information to help some local coaches. Absolutely. Well, Kelly, Jason, I'll be right back, listeners, uh, to wrap this thing up. All right, Banter fans, we're heading to the bullpen to close this thing out. I know that was a, a lot of fun, a lot of good information for infielders. And thank you, Coach or Billy Boyer, for joining us today. And, and I'm going to lead this thing off, and you guys can wrap it up. But, you know, the thing that I, I loved about it, and I guess the two points of emphasis is one, is giving your guys so many tools, you know, like, like, his, like how he had uh, his analogy of trying to hit, put a screw in with a hammer, you know, let's give them multiple tools to go get multiple plays done and giving them all different opportunities and, and, uh, you know, letting guys work through some things to figure out how it's going to be best for them. But we're going to give them the opportunity to figure that out. And then the other thing, and it's something that we've always taught. And now I got some facts. I can go back to my infielders and say, this is why we, when we're, you know, when we're in our prep step, stepping into our baseball world and our, our hop and we're landing as the ball's being hit. Now we got scientific. Well, Billy had the research on it to say, this is why we do it because we're going to be quicker and actually better angles towards, towards uh, ground balls and whatnot. So uh, I thought that was awesome. And, 
I can't wait to listen to it a couple more times and just take it all in. And hopefully we got some uh, season sometime here in the next two months to put some of this to work. Yeah. A lot of what we talked about, uh, Billy and I recently in phone calls and whatnot is, is breaking chains, um, of, of constraints and, and things you do on players. And, and I think that we're really guilty of as, as coaches to not want to let our guard down and teach something that we're one, we weren't taught or two, aren't comfortable doing ourselves or being able to teach. Um, so being able to constantly push thought as far as finding the most efficient way of, of doing something, um, even if that means learning a new skill yourself. I mean, whether you're a young coach, an old coach, um, you know, grab a baseball, grab a glove, try something out that might make sense to you and see if efficiently it could work um, and, and know that you might be able to impress that on a player and allow him to be a, a better player as a result of it. Um, and, and then just each individual guy being a little bit better at, at different things too, where one guy might be better with a rake backhand, the other guy might be better with a crossover backhand um, and, and really utilizing the tools that, that he has in his belt and try to make him a little bit better. You know, a lot of people have talked about that in the past and some of my education is, is we focus a lot on the things that we can't do and trying to get better at that rather than working on the things that we can do and try to make them at a really, really high level. Um, so it's just continuing to better ourselves any way we can as coaches, trying new things, trying new skills. Um, and, and just because you, you can't feel it out yourself or, or someone tells you it's wrong, uh, you know, push your thought and, and, and really try things out to, to see what might be the best way to, to do it. Yeah. You know, that's so important that we not always want to give our, uh, our athletes the, the best tools um, for the belt. But it's also the other thing too, guys, is we want our guys to feel comfortable out there on the field. You know, we have the, some coaches have this generic, uh, structured robotic way of doing things and you, you may not always have that every kid's going to be a little differently on the athletic side of things they're going to be some guys are going to be uh quicker one way or the other uh, arm slot's going to be a little bit different on throw um but we also want to make sure our athletes are doing it right you know so uh, it's important that we encourage them to feel comfortable out on the field to get their best performance but uh, also giving the right tools for the belt um for their tool belt to, to take into action on the field. So. Absolutely. Let the kids play. Yeah. Give them. That's right. Well, That's right. that wraps up another episode of the North Pacific Northwest Fungo Banter. Check us out on Facebook, uh, Pacific Northwest Fungo Banter, or on Twitter at Fungo Banter PNW. We're on Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So uh, until next week, be kind, stay healthy, and let's get back to baseball. <laughs>